Good morning, church. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. Gotten a number of comments about my suit. I don't know if that means I normally look pretty rough. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I am wearing a suit today, and I, I, it's um, thoughtful in that. Um, I know there's a number of you that come from uh, traditions where uh, you delight in dressing up for church, and we want to, we're typically pretty casual here, but we want to, you to know that we celebrate and welcome uh, that as well, if you so desire, so hence the suit this morning, uh, JR inspired me. Uh, we're going to continue in our sermon this morning, sermon series this morning in the book of Ephesians. We're reading from Ephesians chapter 4. If you are able, I'd love for you to stand. For the reading of God's Word, this is Ephesians 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. God says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he all had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray, church. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word, uh, that these words that are spoken would not be mine, but that they would be yours, that they would bring life to our weary souls, that they would equip us for the work of ministry. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so we're continuing in our sermon series this morning in the book of Ephesians that is titled, Who Are We? And this morning is, we come to the dramatic turning point in the text. For the first three chapters, Paul has been laboring to inform us who we are in Christ. 
He has made plain God's master plan to create a new humanity. A new humanity made up of individuals who have been reconciled to God and to one another through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Newsflash, church, we are that new humanity. And yet it's here in chapter 4 that Paul begins to shift, as Daniel previously mentioned, from the indicative to the imperative, from who we are to what we are called to do. Paul is saying, because this is who you are, therefore, this is how you should live. Or even better, in Paul's own words, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul has made clear who we are, and now for the rest of this letter, he calls for us to live out of our newfound identity, to walk in a way that honors and reflects what Christ has done in us, both individually and in our community. We have been made into a new humanity, and so now it's time that we walk it out. And so over the next few pages of the letter, Paul is going to highlight a multitude of different applications of this new identity that is ours in Christ. And yet in many ways, this first application that we see here this morning really serves as the foundation for all the others. If we don't get this right, it's going to be very difficult for us to live out the rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6. That's my appeal for you to pay attention. We'll see if it works. Amen. Let's dive in, church. Paul's first application that we see here in chapter 4 is rather simple. This is the main point of our passage. I'm going to reveal it to you right off the bat. Paul is declaring that because we are one, we must fight to be one. Because we are one, we must fight to be one. Church, this really is the sequel to the sermon I preached a few weeks ago. At the end of chapter 2, Paul declared that the dividing walls have been torn down. That Christ has created one new man in the place of two. That his church is no longer divided, but has become one in him. But what's confusing is that if Paul has said in chapter 2, if what he said is true, then why does he even need to bring this back up? Why charge us to become one when he's just finished telling us that we already are one? It doesn't make any sense. And the reason he does this is because, church, we really stink at walking this out. We're not very good at it. Much like in January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And yet, afterwards, there were reports that slavery continued to exist for months and possibly even years after the fact. You see, the slaves had been declared free, but they didn't know how, or maybe they weren't allowed to walk in that freedom. Church, we have been declared one, but we don't know how to walk in that oneness. And Paul knows this to be true, so he's pleading with us to labor to that end. Listen again to verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace Amen. the Greek verb here for eager is emphatic 
There is this urgency in the Greek text that doesn't translate very well. Not only that, but the verb is actually, here. this here is a participle, which implies this ongoing work that needs to be done. Paul is saying we must be vigilant in our ongoing efforts to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. But why is Paul so emphatic here? Why is he pleading with us? The reason Paul is pleading with us is because he knows how fragile that unity in the church is. I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago who had been hurt by someone in their church. And this person was sharing with me how almost immediately they went to the place of, forget this church, I'm out of here. And the reality is that, surpri- that response should not surprise us because many, if not all of us, have been there. Our hearts are so prone to go to that place when we get hurt. Forget this church. I'm out of here. I hate this place. What's even worse is when that person who hurts you happens to be on the church payroll. Maybe it's Daniel or myself who's doing the hurting. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what's going on in each of your hearts, but I can imagine there are people in here right now that have been in the past or even right now dealing with some hurt that's happened at Christ Central Church. And because of that, you are considering leaving this church. Church, this thing called unity is so fragile. It's not just our hurts that create disunity. It's often our thoughts and conversations that can create division, divisiveness. Here's some examples of some things that might be said that could destroy unity in this church. You know, I really like it when Pastor Daniel preaches. He's so smart and he communicates so clearly. I'm not even sure if Pastor Timothy reads his Bible. (laughs) Or I love it when Justin preaches because he really understands me. He knows where I'm coming from, unlike those crazy white preachers. Or I really wish I was in East, East Durham City Group. My leaders stink and I just really am sick and tired of my city group. I wish I could join that group. Or can you believe what this church believes on that issue? How could anyone who is a Christian actually hold to that belief? Now, some of you feel like I'm talking about you, and I'm honestly not speaking from anything that I've heard. I just know my own heart, and I know how quickly Satan can get in there and begin to drive a wedge Church, Satan is at work seeking to destroy that which Christ has created, the one new man in the place of two. And this is why Paul is so adamant. It's why he's pleading with us. Church, we must fight for this unity or we will lose it. There's three main points that Paul makes this morning in reference to fighting for unity that I want to share with you this morning. He first talks about why we must fight for unity. Secondly, how we must fight for unity. And lastly, the rewards of unity. Let's begin with the why. Church, why is it so important that we fight for unity? Paul's just shown us, and we've experienced, that unity is fragile, but just because something's fragile doesn't mean that we should fight for it. Coach K's ego is really fragile, but that doesn't mean we need to fight to preserve it. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But (laughs) let's look at what Paul says. That, that That was not a good idea, sorry. Let's look at what Paul says here about why we should fight for unity. Paul's answer is pretty clear. He says, we must fight to be one because God is one. We must fight to be one because God is one. Look with me now at verses four through six. 
We have here what many believe is one of the first creeds of the early church. This is a, a statement of faith, what the church is to believe. And what these three verses most profoundly highlight is the marvelous unity that exists within the diversity of the Trinity. This is big time, heavy doctrine. Follow with me. Verse 4, Paul says, There is one body, the church, and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit that fills this body. Verse 5, There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and one faith in Him, and one baptism into His body, the church. Verse 6, there is one God and Father who rules over all and through all and in all. So you have this glorious union that somehow exists within the diversity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God existing in three persons and yet yet perfectly united. It's mind-blowing. We will never understand the Trinity. But Paul's argument here is why unity? Well, because we who are incredibly diverse have been grafted into this glorious union. We, the church, are called to mirror the beautiful diversity that exists in the Trinity. Church, look around. We are different people. We are very different, aren't we? Really, look around. Not, and we're different not just, just ethnic, ethnically or generationally or socioeconomically. We are different people. We have different personalities, different values, different backgrounds, different hobbies, different fashion sense, different food preference. We're different. We are a different group of people. We're a diverse bunch. And yet Paul's argument is that because of what Christ has done, we are now invited to bring all of that diversity to the table, and somehow in that we find oneness. What's beautiful about verses 4 through 6 and really every other passage that talks about the Trinity is that each member of the Trinity is different and they have a unique role that they perform. And yet there's no pressure for one to be like the other. There's no pressure for the Son to be like the Father and no pressure for the Father to be like the Son. Each one has a unique role and they function that role perfectly. They bring all of themselves to the table and in each other's fullness they find oneness. Church, the application is pretty straightforward here, but not often embraced. The first step for us to fight for unity at Christ Central is that each one of you have to bring all of you to the table. The worst thing that you can do is for you to try to be like me, or try to be like Pastor Daniel, or try to be like someone else in this church. The kind of unity that is modeled for us here by the Godhead is the kind of unity where diversity is celebrated and welcomed. So don't stop trying to be you in order for us to be one. Instead, to to steal a line from the army, you need to be all that you can be in order for us to be one. So that's, we begin with the why there. We must fight to be one because God is one. Not a stale, homogenous one, but a diverse, multifaceted, complicated, messy one. That's what God is laying before us here. But how do we do it? How do we fight for unity? From here, Paul shifts from the why to the how, and he gives us two ways that we should fight for unity. First, we need to embrace Christ-like character, and secondly, we need to utilize the gifts that Christ has given. Look again at verse 1. It says, I am a prisoner, urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Church, I think it's so critical for us to note as Paul begins the how-to section that he starts with character and not strategy. 
In the church, we're so prone to hunt for the next best strategy to help cultivate unity and community in our midst, aren't we? If only we had better city groups, or we had more social events, or we better utilized social media. You know, there's an endless list that we could use. Now, obviously, none of those are bad ideas, but they're just not where Paul starts. Paul starts with you, doesn't he? He says, if y'all collectively want to be one, then you, singular, need to embrace a certain kind of character. Here it is. So you must begin to walk in these three character traits. Humility, gentleness, and patience. And what Paul is saying is that when you live out that kind of character, it will manifest itself in a people who bears with one another in love. That's that image of locking arms and doing life together. Where we put up with each other's junk because we have humility, gentleness, and patience. The one thing I remember, one thing, I probably should remember more, but the one thing I remember from my premarital counseling was the principle that the biggest problem in my marriage is my own sin. And the reason that principle is so important because it's so natural for me to think that the biggest problem in my marriage is my wife's sin. It's her sin. That's the problem in my marriage, right? Wrong. In the same sense, church, the, hinder- the biggest hindrance to our collective unity is your pride, your harshness, and your impatience. And please know that I am on the other side of that you with you. We have to work on, we have to fight for this Christ-like character. A couple months ago in a staff meeting, I was having a bad day. And uh, during the meeting, I I wasn't super engaged. I was kind of checked out. And as a result, Pastor Daniel felt as though I was being divisive, that I wasn't on board with what he was doing, and I was ultimately working against him and not with him. Now, Daniel could have, in his pride, in his lack of gentleness, and in his impatience, blasted me in front of the whole staff team. And he could have demanded that I get my tail in gear. But it's not, it's not how he handled the situation. He waited till after the staff meeting, called me into, my, into his office, and asked me what was going on. You see, that's the kind of character that is a recipe for unity. He approached me with humility, with gentleness, and patience. Paul's point is that the starting point for greater unity in the church is not better small groups, but it's each one of us repenting and turning from our pride and our harshness and our impatience. When we do that, it creates a culture of love, or some might call it a culture of grace. Christ Central becomes the, begins to become a place where you don't have to be perfect, where you can make mistakes, where when you hurt me, I'll forgive you, where when I'm wrong, I'll own up to it, where I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful place? That kind of character in each of us is the kindling for the fire of unity. In church, we have to fight for it. The second way that Paul charges us to live out of our new identity and cultivate unity is by utilizing the gifts that Christ has given. In verses 7 through 10, Paul is referring to the incarnation, how Christ has descended from on high to earth and that he ascended back into heaven to be with God the Father. And Paul's making a historical parallel here to the kings of his day. You see, when a king historically would have won a military victory, he would have returned back from his victory to his homeland with the spoils of war, and he would have distributed those to his people. And Paul is saying in the same manner, when Christ returned to his throne after his great victory over sin and death, he distributed spoils to his people, to the church. 
But what are these spoils? What are these gifts that Christ has given that Paul's referring to here? The gifts that Paul's referring to here are actually people. It's, very, it's fascinating what he says here. Certain kinds of people that have been given certain spiritual gifts. And these people with these spiritual gifts exist to pass on the truth of the gospel. Christ has given the church these people that, in order that the one truth gets to the one body. Look with me in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's important that we read this text in light of what Paul has previously said in chapter 2. So I'm going to read it again, verse 19. He says, So then you, church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Church, we're about to get into some kind of weighty, a little bit technical theology here, but I, I want to encourage you to try to track with me because this, this is so massively important for us to understand how we become one. Paul is communicating this doctrine to us through a metaphor, so we need to picture it. And the metaphor is a house. And so I want, you, I want to try to paint a picture of this for you guys. And, and we begin, as Bruce Herod, I'm sure, can attest to, with the foundation as any building must. And the construction of the house begins with the cornerstone, that foundational stone by which every other stone gets its bearing. And Paul says Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundational stone without which there is no building. You take the cornerstone out of the building and it will not stand. And then continuing with the metaphor, coming off the cornerstone is the rest of the foundation, I want you to picture this with me. The rest of the foundation consists of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles being those who were chosen by Christ to speak on his behalf. Paul being one of these. And also the prophets. The prophets being the Old Testament counterpart to the apostles. The prophets being the ones commissioned by God to speak on his behalf. Those were the ones who began their speech with the saying, Thus saith the Lord. Because they were the very mouthpiece of God. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the ones that you might be familiar with. And it is the apostles and the, and the prophets getting their authority from Christ himself that have laid the foundation of our faith. This is huge. And here it is, folks. This is it. This is the foundation. It's the Word of God, the Bible. They've laid it for us. And what's important that we know is that the, the foundation is finished. It's complete. It's in its final form. Anyone who knows about a house, the metaphor is so helpful here is because once the foundation has been laid, it's set. It cannot be changed. It cannot be added to or subtracted from. It is complete. And so this is what we need to know. This is our complete foundation. It is set. It cannot be added to or subtracted from. Let me try to make this plain for you. What Paul is saying that is that any idea that is not in line with this, the foundation with God's Word, it's not true. Amen? This is our foundation. Church, do you understand why that is so important when we think about unity? If we're not all standing on the same foundation, we cannot be one. If we are not built on this one foundation, we are a house divided. Let's keep going with this metaphor. Christ has given the apostles and prophets as the foundation, Jesus being the cornerstone. And then he gives, on top of that, the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Now, the syntax is a little different with the last two, which seems to point to the fact that the shepherds and teachers are one and the same person. Those are the pastors. 
So the next gifts that Christ have given are the evangelists, those who bring the good news, the truth, into a new context, and then the pastors, those who care and teach for the body of Christ. Now, church, don't lose sight of the metaphor. We have to stay rooted. We have to envision the evangelists and the pastors building only upon that which has already been laid. Those are the one who are, those who are called to preach and teach, care for his people in a way that they do not add or detract from the foundation that has already been laid. What this means is that when Daniel and I stand up here to preach, we stand solely on this book. We stand solely on the Word of God. This is the foundation that we preach from. And the only way that we can foster unity is is if we continue to do that over and over and over again. Church, this is part of the reason why we primarily preach through entire books of the Bible. Okay, so that we're preaching God's truth and not my truth and not Daniel's truth. Preaching the Word of God. Now let's finish the metaphor as Paul does, and this is where you come in. Who are these gifts given to? Who are these people given to? Look at verse 12. Given to equip the saints, lights out, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Christ gives these gifts to you. They're given to you, the saints. What a tragedy it would be if come Christmas Day, we've got all the Christmas under the, presents under the tree, and we finished the day and we didn't open them. We just packed them up, took them back up to the attic, and stored them until next Christmas. That would be terrible. We're supposed to open up these crisps, we're supposed, gifts, we're supposed to use them. Christ has given you, the saints, these gifts to use them for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Daniel and I preach in order to show you the foundation, to point you to what the building looks like. And you guys have the bricks. You actually build the house. It's up to you to do the work. Without you, the house never gets built. Stacy and I had the privilege of renovating our house couple years ago one of the pieces of advice that I was given that is that we need to have a good architect I thought that was kind of silly and I thought it was really silly every month when I got that bill in the mail but I was told we need to have a good architect and the truth is I didn't understand that the builder is lost without the architect if they don't have the blueprint they have no idea to do they have the power and the ability to do it but without that map they don't know where to place the bricks they don't know what they're doing Daniel and I exist each week to show you the design so that we can then cut you loose to build so that you can lay some brick, so you can build this house, this unified house that Christ has given us, the church. Church, I want to try to summarize this to try to bring it home. Paul's big idea here is that Christ has given gifts to his church, and those gifts are given to ensure the building is built correctly. The first and most important gift is the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. It's God's word. It's the most important gift. On top of that are the evangelists and the pastors, those who have been called to preach God's word and administer his sacraments. And it may not feel like it, but what Paul's saying is that Daniel and I are gifts to you. We exist to serve you, to empower you, so that you can run, so that you can build. And church, you should be comforted in the fact that we did not appoint ourselves to this position that the church has examined us, that the church has seen fit to call us to this place. They've laid hands on Daniel and I to serve you so that we can point you to that blueprint, to that foundation, so that you can know how to build. 
And we're held accountable to continue to stand on this foundation. If we ever get off, bad things happen. I hope that that gives you freedom and encouragement to trust that each week that we're giving you the blueprint and that it's God's blueprint, it's His design. And so we give you that so that you can build, so that we can build this unified house. That's how Christ Central will become one. We need to open up these gifts and we need to use them. This leads us to our third and final point. Paul has shown us why we should fight for unity. He's shown us how to do it. And then he concludes by showing us the reward that comes when we fight for unity, when we fight this fight. Look again at the result that we see in the text. When he says, when we walk in this Christ-like manner, when you, the saints, utilize the gifts that God has given you to do the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ, the result is, first th- verse 13, we all begin to attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Church, the result is that we as a church begin to move from childhood to adulthood. We become grown men and grown women. One of the things that I've noticed over the few short years that I've been a parent is that children have a hard time coping with disappointment. Amen? When we plan to go somewhere fun for the day and we arrive and the said place is closed, my four-year-old doesn't handle that very well. It's very sad. It wrecks her world. But as we get older, we become better suited to handle life's disappointments, don't we? But not just because we're older, but hopefully because we've developed deep relationships with other people who can stand with us in the storm. Look at verse 14. This is, it talks about how the mature body looks. The mature body is no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Church, the storms are coming. Many of you have already tasted what this is like. I've watched over the past two years, even in this very church, where people have walked through horrible tragedies, whether it be loss of loved ones, miscarriages, debilitating illnesses, loss of job, friends turning their back on you. The list goes on and on. And unless, church, we grow up into maturity, into manhood, into womanhood, unless we grow together in unity, we will never be able to withstand the storms of life that are coming for each of us. Church, we need each other and we need to become one. Paul concludes this portion of the letter by painting a picture of what this kind of unity looks like. Verse 16. When each part is working properly, when we're all bought in, It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we all do our part, when we all buy in, when we all give ourselves to the one whole, the result is an ever-increasing oneness that is marked by love. Marked by love. One of my favorite movies is uh, Remember the Titans. You guys may have seen it before. Uh, it's a story of integration in a high school and a, centered around a football team. And a new coach comes in, African-American coach, Coach Yost, and, and the team does not, is not really excited about this whole integration thing. 
They're not getting along very well, and they're not winning games as a result. And so he decides to take them to the battlefield of Gettysburg. And this is what he says. He says, This is where they fought the battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen and you take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed, just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. Church, in many ways, this table is our Gettysburg battlefield. We come here and we're reminded that the battle has been fought and Christ has won the victory. And church, if we don't come together and become one, we will be destroyed. Satan will tear this church apart. We hear about it all the time. Some of you have walked that journey of seeing a church split in half. Church, we have to fight to become one because in Christ we are one. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have showed us in your word that you have torn down the dividing walls. There's no reason for us to not be one anymore. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, we can bring ourselves, our diverse selves, all of us to the table, and somehow in Christ we become one. Lord, help us to fight for that Christ-like character And help us to utilize the gifts that you've given us so that we can have the one true doctrine that's built on the one firm foundation that is Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us all to do the work of building up this church, the work of ministry, that we might be one in Christ. Lord, help us to fight to be one because in you we are one. pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So church, we now come to the table, and again, there's no better picture of oneness, right? You don't buy tickets, there's not a order in which you come, we come together because we're all one family equal in the, in the body of Christ. And so I pray that this table will do its work on us once again, as we taste and see the goodness of Christ, the grace of Christ given to us, purchased by His blood, that we would find oneness here at Christ Central Church. And I hope, I hope, uh, for those of you who are new and those who are outside watching, that they would see us become one and they would marvel. And it would be the thing that draws them into our community. Amen, church? Uh, The way we do this at Christ Central Church is we have red wine and white grape juice. We have gluten-free bread. Uh, The ushers are going to invite you down row by row. If you are a guest here, we are so glad that you're here. One of the things that's beautiful about the church is you don't have to pretend. You can be messy. And if you're not a Christian, if you do not see Christ as your Lord, would you please keep coming back and listening to what's going on here? I hope observing this oneness that we're talking about 
Um, but please don't feel like you have to pretend. You don't have to come forward and act like you're something that you're not. And so we just want to invite you. If that's who you are, we're glad you're here. You're welcome to stay in your seat. If you want to come forward for prayer, if you just motion like this, we'd love to pray for you. For those of you who are children of God and are longing for oneness, this table is for you. I pray that, think about how we do this on Sunday morning. We don't do it separately. We do it together because it's, it's, a, it's a community meal. And so as you come, be reminded that you're not just fellowshipping with Christ, but you're fellowshipping with each other. That's what this meal is all about. I'm going to pray now for this meal, and I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward as I pray. Father, we thank you for this meal. We thank you that it's not just through the preached word uh, that you speak to us, but you give us these gifts, this bread and this wine, so that we might actually taste it, that we might taste your goodness and your grace, and that we might experience this new humanity that you've created. I pray that you would meet us here, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. pray these things in your son's name. Amen.